0: I'd like to speak to you this morning on the topic of sexual purity from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. There's something really beautiful about a spring of fresh water. I remember as a kid being really thirsty, and um, we had this little farm on the edge of D.C., and going to the well, and dipping my bucket into the well, and being refreshed by the fresh spring water, you know, pure It's beautiful. There's something really ugly about a sewer. I remember as a kid, uh, the sewer near a house. Once in a while, the sewer would have issues, problems, and a workman would open the sewer manhole. And I would get to look inside the sewer, and all kinds of filth and rats and nastiness was in the sewer. I can't think of a better analogy to describe the beauty and purity of what God did with our sexuality, and the filth and nastiness and all the deviations that come out of this world, that God made us male and female, God gave us a sexuality, and He wants our sexuality to be something beautiful like fresh water, but our sexuality is often abused, exploited like the sewer. Honestly, I struggled with this topic of sexuality to talk about with children in the room, Because the word has so much to say about it. So I decided I'd start with a story. Because I think this story gets at where the culture is. It's a story about two boys named Sam and Johnny. Sam and Johnny were best friends. And Sam was having a birthday party. And so his parents gave him permission to invite his friends over to the party. Well, if it were happening now, of course, there'd be social distancing and masks. And couldn't blow out the candles. So Sam called up Johnny and asked if he would come to his party. Johnny said, sure, I'd love to come. And he made a promise to come. Later that day, Johnny got another offer from Susie. Susie was cute. And they were kind of flirting with each other in school. And uh, Susie liked Johnny. And she wanted him to come to her party at her house on the same day. So, predictably, Johnny called Sam called back Sam and said he couldn't, be, couldn't come. Sam was sort of heartbroken by that. Honestly, Johnny was struggling a little bit with the decision. So Johnny went home to his dad. And he said, Dad, I told Sam I was going to his party. And then another offer came along. And I ditched Sam and said yes to Susie's party. The dad said, well, let me see if I understand the issue. You made a promise to Sam And then you got an invitation from Susie. Now you've got a big decision. What are you going to do? The dad said, well, let me tell you a story. I made a promise to your mom. I said I would be faithful. I said I would forsake all others. What if a woman came along and said, let's go off to Vegas together? Let's get a hotel. Let's gamble. Let's go see a few shows and be together. I mean, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There's plenty of people I work with that I could start up with. Johnny said, Dad, you made a promise to Mom. You need to keep your promise. You need to say no to the other offer, the other invitation. Dad said, that's why... You need to learn to keep your promise when you're young. The next morning, Johnny made two phone calls. First phone call was to Sam, to say, I'm sorry, I broke a promise to you. And the second was to Susie, to say, I'm not coming. I believe the story gets at the heart of the issue, that we're called as believers to be faithful to our promise Because God is faithful to his promise. You might be married. And you have people hitting on you. You have offers coming in. You have those annoying little pop-ups on your computer trying to entice you. (laughs) You know the latest pop-up that's on my computer because of my age? Is an urn to be buried in. (laughs) They think I'm going to die soon little joke, but that's true. Um, <laughs> I won't tell you about the previous decades, what they were giving me on these pop-ups. You see movies where there's nudity and lewdness. You see, hear music that's suggestive and explicit. Or you might be unmarried. Raised by Christian parents, tried to shelter you from the world. I know of a pastor's daughters just watch Little House on the Prairie. But you have to decide, as an unmarried, who you're going to date, right? And how far you'll go with that person. What kind of movies you'll see. What kind of music you'll listen to. There's always a progression in the physical department, unless you put up boundaries. So the greatest struggle in your life right now may be purity. So I want to speak a word of encouragement to you. Many people experience defeat in this area because the temptation is so strong. I want to open to you the door of hope. I'm really sorry that you're growing up, I'm speaking now to those who are unmarried, I'm really gr- you're growing up in a culture that is indulging itself in every conceivable and inconceivable sexual activity. God's will is very clear on this, by the way. Sex is permitted encouraged between a man and a woman in the context of covenantal marriage. Sex before marriage isn't permitted, this is called fornication. Sex by married people outside of marriage to somebody else isn't permitted. That's called adultery. This is really nothing new. One of the gurus of the sexual revolution, his name was Hugh Hefner. He wrote that sex is a function of the body or a drive which man shares with animals like eating, drinking, sleeping. It's a physical demand that must be satisfied. If you don't satisfy it, you'll have neuroses, repression, psychological issues. He says, throw away all of these prudes and all these inhibitions and find a girl and let yourself go. That's the philosophy of our world. Now there's a number of components to it. First, sex is an animal function. No different than eating, drinking, sleeping. Sex is a physical demand. If you don't satisfy it, you'll go crazy. Third, there are prudes out there who would tell you not to, but find yourself a girl who would agree and go for it. So I ask a question, now we come to the first question of our notes. What was the first century culture, and how is this 21st century culture we're living in, how did they two compare, okay? What's the difference between first century culture and 21st century culture? Now, I ask the question, has there ever been a more permissive society than America? And the answer is yes. Hugh Hefner could have easily brought his philosophy to the Greek culture of the Roman world. Thessalonica, the city we're speaking of here in this book, was thoroughly pagan. Their sexual revolution included homosexuality. Several of the Caesars indulged themselves with young boys. Their culture had prostitution. It was legal for a man or a woman to sell themselves. In cities like Corinth, there were over 3,000 prostitutes. I remember, just as a young married guy with Debbie, going through the city of Amsterdam and passing through the red light district where prostitution is legalized and encouraged. 97% of the sex workers there carry venereal disease. There's red lights all over the district with women in the doorways, hanging out the windows, flying their trade. Just like Amsterdam, Thessalonica had prostitution and women could be bought. And their culture also had something called concubines. concubines. A concubine was a slave hired to fulfill sexual desire. One of the sad things, if you ever travel to a place like Haiti, is you'll see so many young girls in the presence of older men who've been basically bought to be sexual slaves. A wife was not the primary sexual partner. They also had mistresses. A man could buy himself a concubine, he could rent himself a prostitute, he could persuade a mistress in order to commit adultery. The culture that Paul lived in was very much like the culture that we live in except we have now the media where this is common and tolerated and customary. So why is this important? Paul went to Thessalonica with his friends Timothy and Silas, and they went there to preach the gospel. The gospel was proclaimed in Thessalonica to people who basically were pagans. They lived a pagan lifestyle. And their religion included hookups with temple prostitutes. And then they heard about Jesus Christ. And this began to change their entire lives. No longer did they believe they could do anything they wanted. Now they were called to a new life. They were having their minds renewed. They were breaking with old habits. They were learning to resist temptation. You see, there's always the pull of the old life. There's always the push of the culture. And Paul wants them to walk as they ought to walk, to walk in a manner pleasing to God. So he addresses the issue of purity because the desire is so strong and the temptation is so compelling and the past is so sinful and society is so corrupt. Question number two, what is God's standard then for sexual purity? Well, let's look together at the Scripture and we'll read through the first three verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more the last time we were there we spoke to you of this and now we're bringing back to your attention because it's such an important topic for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus we weren't just making this up this wasn't just something we said This is what God said. This is how He wants us to live our lives. And here it is, verse 3. For it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. It is God's will for you to be sanctified, that is to avoid or abstain from sexual immorality. God's will is always good and pleasing and perfect. If you want to walk with God, If you want to please him, if you want to do what God wants you to do, the good news is you have a new nature, and the new nature wants to please God. You have a longing to give God pleasure. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Sanctification is an umbrella term to cover the rest of the book because every other principle he gives and every other exhortation is an element of sanctification. God's will for you is to be set apart, to abstain from sexual immorality. Remember last week we talked about how Paul prayed for them to be holy and blameless, right? God wants you to be set apart from sin, all that is filthy and evil and impure in this world. You see, when God saved your soul, he also called you to a life of sanctification, Of being progressively more like him. The Bible is saying then, stay away from sexual sin. Now, people will always ask here's the first question that comes up How far do I have to stay away? How far can I go and still be okay? Can we hold hands? Can we kiss? Can we make out? Is it okay if we're engaged? How far can we go? I don't think that's the right question really to ask how far can we go. A better question to ask is how do we stay pure? God wants me to stay pure. So I want to stay in agreement with him. I want to walk with him. I want to please him. So if you're unmarried, you need to state your intentions, right? Your convictions. You need to set boundaries. You need to not put yourself in a place where you're going to be tempted. I mean, there's movies you shouldn't see. There's music you shouldn't listen to. There's books you shouldn't really read. There's friends you shouldn't hang out with. There's parties you shouldn't go to. There's clothes you shouldn't wear. So, what is this immorality? It's a broad term covering all kinds of sexual sin anything other than a monogamous relationship between a husband and wife. Now, God is not against sex. The first person to think about sex was God. God made us male and female. And he says that the marriage bed is undefiled, right? But God will judge the fornicator and the adulterer, Hebrews 13, 4. So the question is, how do we live up to this standard? Right, okay. Now, just take a deep breath. I know this is heavy. Here we go. Verse number 4, it says these words that each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable. First thing I want to tell you is, in order to hold up to the standard is, you need to exercise self-control. How can I live pure in an impure world? How can I avoid making huge mistakes? There's something you must do that nobody else can do for you. Empowered by the Spirit, with God's help, in the context of Christian community, you can learn how to control your body. We live in a society where the body is in control. The bottom line philosophy in America is if it feels good, do it. We don't think much about the consequences. Whatever you feel, just do it, right? You're feeling romantic. You're feeling the chemistry. You're feeling the attraction. Just go for it, right? Paul was interacting with the people in Corinth, and he's, this happens in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Even though I'm allowed, Paul said, to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the body and the, for the stomach and stomach for food. Just look at how you're made. You get hungry and you eat, You get thirsty and you drink. You get attracted to somebody and then you're with them. Paul says, but the body was not designed for immorality. Don't let the body rule. You have to learn to govern yourself. Number one thing I want to say about self control is that your convictions, your mind is the command center, not your body. Your convictions need to govern your body. You need to know what your triggers are of what when you're weak, like late at night and being hungry and by yourself, and remove the temptation, right? Don't let yourself have access to what tempts you. I mean, I eat far less ice cream when I have none in the freezer. <laughs> and I eat much less french fries when I don't order them at a restaurant. And I drink much less beer when I don't have it in the fridge. And I drink far less whiskey if I don't sit at the bar. Hear what I'm trying to say. Self-control is the ability to squash an impulse to keep a commitment. My first exposure to pornography was when I was 10 years old. We didn't have easy access to porn like we do today. You stumbled upon a discarded magazine. You found a friend with a dad who had a stash. And I had a friend who had a dad who had a secret stash. He invited me over to his house to see his dad's collection. And you won't believe what I found. I remember very clearly my first exposure I felt this rush of excitement, thrill, adrenaline high. Then it was followed by guilt and shame, like I had done something wrong. Then it was amplified by, when I got home, my mom said, where have you been? And I felt terrible. Am I talking to anybody here with a similar experience? We're all in a battle, aren't we? The good news is that we have the heart of a warrior. We have a kingdom to advance. We have so much to protect and a battle to win. But we have a real spiritual enemy who's out to kill, steal, and destroy. We'd love to distract you and lure you and captivate you and discourage you and take you out. One of the enemy's strategies is to attack through the battle in the mind called lust. So what is your battle plan? If you're going to be a warrior, if you're going to fight this battle, you're going to have to have a battle plan, you see. I've never known a warrior to go into battle and not have a battle plan. Saying, I want to be a slave to this. I want something to wreck my life. I want to lose the faith of people that love me. I want to betray my spouse. I want to lose my spiritual confidence. I want to live in shame. I want to trade everything in for selfish pleasure. Let me ask you a question. What percentage of men do you say in the American culture deal with pornography? The latest statistics are 64% of men, Christian men, and 15% of Christian women deal with this. And if you are between 18 and 30, unfortunately, the numbers go up. It is 79%. We are in a battle with the flesh, but you are a warrior. You're in a battle, but you can win this battle. There was a warrior. His name was David, a poet, musician. You know, David, there's hundreds of verses about David, but the, da- the verses we remember most are... 2 Samuel chapter 11 David was on the rooftop in the spring of the year when the armies go off to battle he got gotten up from a nap and he looked off the rooftop and guess what he saw he saw Bathsheba bathing he saw a beautiful woman bathing and he didn't look away and she was beautiful and she was married And he called for her, and they lay together, and she sent word to say, I am pregnant. That was compounded by other bad decisions and caused indescribable pain. A man after God's own heart, and what happened? The same thing that happens to us. David wasn't where he was supposed to be, and David did something he wasn't supposed to do. And that decision cost him and so many people to lose what they weren't supposed to lose. It all started when he was where he wasn't supposed to be and he was looking at something he wasn't supposed to look at and he did something he wasn't supposed to do. We are engaged in a battle. David's problem was he disengaged from God's calling on his life. David should have been leading, and he was lusting. So what do I know about you? There, this may be some version of your story. There was a time when you were exposed to something impure. It could have been when you were in fifth grade like me, looking at something you shouldn't have seen. It could have been you are on a date, and you did something you weren't planning to do. You didn't realize it then, but what happened was you were injured, you were wounded, you were hurt. Just like a computer virus goes into the computer and begins to affect all the computer because of the virus, so the virus got inside of us. Part of you like the thrill, the dopamine release, but there's also the shame and the guilt and the regret and the self-loathing that goes with this. You have a wound. Just like I had a wound. But what Christ really wants to do is he wants to heal that wound. When are you most vulnerable? Probably when you're most overly confident. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, When you think you're standing strong, you want to take heed. We are always potentially vulnerable. So we have to be honest about what triggers us. Scrolling on social media. Playing computer games late at night. Traveling on business. Being in hotels. Looking at the channels. Being with a boyfriend or girlfriend. We have to be honest. What David was feeling here was pretty entitled. He was alone, the king. He could have whatever he wanted. Perhaps he had a lot of stress in his life. And he could justify it by saying, this is just a little humble relief, you know? It won't hurt anybody. What happened there was a tragedy. How do we live up to the standard? First, practice self-control. Secondly, Know who we are. Look at verse 5. It says, Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. He's saying that we are to live our lives to honor God, not in passionate lust like the heathen who know not God. Do we know who we are? That we truly are the children of God. That we are warriors. And your mind will always be a battlefield. But you are an overcomer. The scripture says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You are more than a conqueror. The very same spirit that lived inside of Jesus, that enabled him to be pure, lives inside of you. And you have a battle to win. I want to see you win this battle. I want to see you overcome and to conquer. God really wants you to live your life with purity in the power of the Spirit, not like the passionate lust all around us. How do we live up to this standard? We practice self-control, verse 4. We know who we are, verse 5. And then we know that God takes this seriously, verse 6. Look, it says, that in this matter no one should wrong his brother, or take advantage of him. I'd ra- much rather camp on the benefits of staying in your lane. But if a person chooses to stray. If they get out of their lane. If they choose to have an affair. God takes that seriously. God will bring judgment on them. Could be their life would be shortened. Could be they lose the respect of their kids. You see, Paul's speaking here about purity. And we all need a plan, right? We need a plan toward purity. How do we live up to this standard? We rely upon the Spirit. Verses 7 and 8. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. And he rejects this instruction, does not reject man, but the God who gives us the Holy Spirit. You see, God would never call us to a lifestyle. He would not enable us to live. And the way we live this lifestyle is not in our own strength, not in our own power, but in the power that God gives us through his Holy Spirit. It really is the life of surrender, of saying, God, I can't do this by myself, and I need your help. The power does not come from us, but it comes from God. That's why 1 Corinthians says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, you've received from God? You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. How do we live up to the standard? Finally, practice love. Now, verse 9, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you for yourselves have been taught by God how to love one another. In essence, the world around us will teach you about eros, which is physical attraction. God would teach you about agape, which is the love of God for you and the love of God expressed through you. You want to cultivate a deep, deep love for Jesus. There was a man whose name was Joseph, and Joseph was put in a trial a temptation he was working for a man named Potiphar and Potiphar's wife made a move on him and he said how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my God he called what was about to happen which didn't happen wicked you have to understand this that in this world you're going to be tempted and there are all kinds of invitations will come your way But if you want your life to be like that beautiful spring water, that pure water, you're going to have to immerse yourself in the deep love of Jesus and ask for help through the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to practice self-control. You're going to have to know who you are. You're going to have to resist being like those in the world to walk in purity before God. You know, some would say this issue really is resolved if we just kind of let go and let God. But I would say this is going to require intense effort on your part to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. To put off the old man which is corrupted with deception and lust. To be made new in the attitude of your mind. And to put on the new man which is created in righteousness and holiness by Christ. You know, if you're outside... And you're getting attacked by mosquitoes. You just don't simply let them swarm upon you and just bite you. You get your fly swatter out, right? You can start whacking some of those things, right? Or you spray, you spray them. Because you just don't want to be attacked by the mosquitoes. There's an active part you take in this battle against mosquitoes. And there's a very active part you take in this battle toward sexual purity. You probably won't hear this on any television show you see. So you're going to have to dig into your faith and become deeply rooted and understand the standard God gives and find yourself in Christian community where you can have these convictions reinforced and walk together through this world in purity because God wants us to be pure. Pray with me. God in heaven... As we broach this subject, we understand that this is battleground. Our minds, indeed, are about battleground because all kinds of thoughts come into our mind, pure and unpure. In this world, Lord, we are assaulted from what we see, what we read, what we hear. And God, your desire for us is to be free and pure, to be like that beautiful stream that's flowing, not like the sewer that is around us. You want us, Lord, to hear your voice that you're calling to us, that there is forgiveness in the person of Jesus, that there's a grace available to us that we can avail ourselves of, a power that is greater than ourselves, to change the whole trajectory of our life, if we've stepped over these boundaries, surely we have, that God, you're merciful towards us, that your blood is sufficient for us, that there is forgiveness in the person of Jesus. There's a power available to us that we've often not availed ourselves of. So, Father, we pray that you would empower your people to live pure. And just like these ones who were living in a pagan culture and called to a new life, so you're calling us out, Lord. You're calling us to something much better, something more beautiful. Lord, help us to aspire to the beautiful and the pure, to desire your heart, Lord, to be pleasing to you and faithful in the context of our relationships. Where there is sin, Lord, we confess. We humbly admit to you, Lord, that we battle, that there is temptation, that there is pull and there is drag. And we ask you, Lord, for you to lift us and help us to feel the freshness of your forgiveness and the flow of your spirit in our lives. Anoint your people, Lord. May we be examples living in this culture of what it means to follow after you. We pray in Jesus' name. one of the reasons why I identify so strongly with what Paul's preaching about in 1 Thessalonians is because I came out of paganism. I wasn't raised in a Christian environment. So when I was just 21 years old, being a pagan, um, I ran into a beautiful blonde woman named Debbie and we were at the beach. It was a romantic evening, you know, moon was low in the sky, The fog was rolling in, waves were crashing, draping our sh- shoes over our shoulder. I decided I'd put my arm around her. We just had met. And I thought, well, I just would claim her on the beach. And she gave me an elbow in my ribs. And I thought, what's this for? She said, I'm a Christian, and Christians don't do these kinds of things. See, I don't even know pagan kind of things. I hadn't really understood Christian kind of things. And what it engendered in me was deep respect for her and for her faith. I learned that that was a huge part of my coming to faith was seeing Debbie's strong faith. And then as we progressed in engagement and all, she learned how to trust me that I wouldn't take advantage of her or defraud her, rob something from her. You see, respect and trust are two keys to any relationship being healthy and strong. And so I really do say these words to you all with love because I really know that there's a battleground here going on in our culture and in our lives, and I really want to see you overcome. So I want to just pray again. Father, may these words that Paul wrote, these inspired words, be to us not an unattainable standard but be to us an aspiration of our soul that we could walk in a way that's pleasing to you lord and learn new ways new habits have our minds continually be renewed to not be so influenced by this world in which we live or the patterns all around us the examples we see the shows we see on television but rather lord we would have higher standard, and we would have convictions that form out of that, and we would walk in forgiveness and freedom, and I pray this for each person, Lord, here in this room, or listening, Lord, on Facebook, that, God, you give them amazing victory and freedom this week as they walk in your ways, Lord. Help them find the accountability they need, the support, the encouragement, and I pray for each person growing up, Lord, in this culture they might form convictions that are strong, and their roots may go deep. They may walk their lives out in purity, Lord, we pray. In the powerful, matchless name of Jesus, God's people said, amen. God bless you all. See you next week.